Hello, and welcome to this audio edition of Philip Huscher's program notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. I'm Rich Caparola. Concerts by the CSO on Thursday, October 7th through Saturday the 9th feature Riccardo Moti directing a program including music by Missy Mazzoli, These Worlds in Us, The Enchanted Lake by Anatol Lyotov, and Tchaikovsky's Symphony No. 6, The Patatique. Here are Philip Pusher's program notes on Missy Mazzoli's These Worlds in Us, a work lasting about nine minutes. Missy Mazzoli was little more than halfway through her three years as our Mead composer-in-residence when the pandemic shut down Orchestra Hall, scrapping the world premiere just a month away of Orpheus Undone, the piece she had written for the orchestra, along with a series of Music Now concerts she had curated. Much of the planned Music Now repertory was eventually salvaged as part of the orchestra's new online CSO TV platform, and Orpheus Undone will now be premiered under Ricardo Muti's baton on March 31st. But this week's performance of her earliest orchestral composition, These Worlds in Us, mark her first appearance on Chicago Symphony Orchestra programs. Ironically, she has already stepped down as our resident composer, passing the title to Jesse Montgomery three months ago. At the time of her Chicago appointment at the start of the 2018-19 season, Mazzoli was a name that popped up in any serious discussions of music being written today, the kind of burden that can easily defeat all but the truest of artists. Instead, Mazzoli thrived, achieving that rarest of existences, a popular musician. She played club dates with Victoire, her electroacoustic quintet. She collaborated with Wilco drummer Glenn Kochi. She wrote music for Amazon's Mozart in the Jungle series, was also amassing important commissions and awards for the boldness and invention of her writing. Mazzoli first drew serious attention in the early years of our century with small-scaled pieces such as Harp and Altar, a love song to the Brooklyn Bridge. The title comes from Hart Crane's poem, introduced by the Kronos Quartet, or Still Life with Avalanche, a sextet about the disruptive power of grief that its title suggests, which was commissioned by Eighth Blackbird. A performance by members of the Civic Orchestra of Chicago is still available on CSO.org. But it was Songs from the Uproar, a multimedia song cycle based on the journals of Isabel Eberhardt, a 19th century Swiss explorer, that pointed her career in a new direction, suggesting that she had important things to say in the dramatic realm. Uproar, which premiered in 2012, was followed by Breaking the Waves, a bold operatic revisiting of the dark and provocative Lars van Trier film, and Proving Up, an opera based on a short story by Karen Russell that casts a new light on the myth of the American dream. The Lyric Opera of Chicago will present Proving Up at the Goodman Theater in January. Most of my operas so far have centered on women in impossible situations, Mazzoli told the BBC in 2020. Being a woman in a male-dominated field and struggling to carve out an identity is one of my big preoccupations. The fact that she is one of the first two women commissioned by the Metropolitan Opera to compose for the company, an adaptation of George Saunders' experimental award-winning novel Lincoln in the Bardo, is now in the works, suggests the extent of her success.
This year, Mazzoli completed a new opera, The Listeners, commissioned by the Norwegian National Opera, Opera Philadelphia, and Lyric Opera. The premiere will be given in Norway next year. Lyric has not yet announced the dates for the Chicago performances. Mazzoli has described it as an opera about our desperate desire to belong, our search for community and meaning, and the power of charismatic leaders who exploit these desires. Although the pandemic derailed many of Mazzoli's Chicago public appearances, her objective to expand our experience with music by living composers and to bring new names into our repertory, particularly those who have been overlooked in recent years, moved forward through Music Now's online incarnation, commissioned works materialized, world premieres happened, and new voices emerged, just not in traditional concerts before an audience. It was her ballet, Orpheus Alive, from 2019, that was the springboard for the work Mazzoli would write as the centerpiece of her Chicago Symphony residency, Orpheus Undone. Composed before the pandemic, but uncannily reflecting today's changed world, Orpheus Undone, quote, explores the baffling and surreal stretching of time in moments of trauma or agony. By happenstance, Mazzoli's deeply personal and unsparing language and her understanding of the dark side of human nature has made her a fitting voice for our troubled times. And after nearly two years of quarantines and social distancing, Mazzoli's reverence for a sense of belonging is particularly apt. The purpose of creating music is to feel less alone, to create a community around the work to express something that can't be expressed in words, she has said. Writing about enthusiasm strategies, a tiny piece she recently composed for the Kronos Quartet as part of its 50 for the Future project, Mazzoli entrusts music with the greatest of goals. It's a way of setting the world in order, a method of carving up time in a way that seemingly, by magic, changes our frame of mind, energizes us, and gives us courage and reassurance. These Worlds in Us, composed in 2006, is among the earliest of Mazzoli's works and her first score for orchestra. From its haunting first chord, with its unsettled harmony and mysterious sonority, strings, harp, vibraphone, and melodicas, These Worlds in Us traces the infinite shadings between sorrow and happiness. And here is Missy Mazzoli with her own words on These Worlds in Us. The title, These Worlds in Us, comes from James Tate's poem, The Lost Pilot, a meditation on his father's death in World War II. And here is an excerpt. My head cocked towards the sky, I cannot get off the ground, and you passing over again, fast, perfect, and unwilling to tell me that you are doing well, or that it was a mistake that placed you in that world, and me in this, or that misfortune placed these worlds in us. This piece is dedicated to my father, who was a soldier during the Vietnam War. In talking to him, it occurred to me that as we grow older, we accumulate worlds of intense memory within us, and that grief is often not far from joy. I like the idea that music can reflect painful and blissful sentiments in a single note or gesture, and sought to create a sound palette that I hope is at once completely new and strangely familiar to the listener. The theme of this work, a mournful line first played by the violins, collapses into glissandos almost immediately after it appears, giving the impression that the piece has been 
submerged underwater or played on a turntable that is grinding to a halt. The melodicus mouth organs, played by the percussionists in the opening and final gestures, mimic the wheeze of a broken accordion, lending a particular vulnerability to the bookends of the work. The rhythmic structures and cyclical nature of the piece are inspired by the unique tension and logic of Balinese music, and the march-like figures in the percussion bring to mind the militaristic inspiration for the work, as well as the relentless energy of electronica drumbeats. Words by both Missy Mazzoli and by Philip Huscher on Mazzoli's These Worlds in Us. And now on to Tchaikovsky's Symphony No. 6, the Patatique Symphony, a work lasting about 45 minutes. Five days after he conducted the premiere of the symphony, Tchaikovsky drank a glass of unboiled water, a careless move that year in St. Petersburg, where countless cases of cholera had recently been reported. He died four days later. When the symphony was performed for a second time the following week, the hall was draped in black, and a bust modeled after the composer's death mask was prominently displayed. An 11-year-old boy, who would soon become Russia's most celebrated composer, attended that concert with his father, the great baritone Fyodor Stravinsky. Little Igor, whose own music would eventually refute much of what Tchaikovsky's glorified, understood, even at the time, the magnitude of this loss. Not just to his family, his father was famous for his interpretations of several Tchaikovsky roles, but to the larger music world as well. At the time he died, Tchaikovsky was one of the great figures in music. He was at the peak of his creative powers, and he was both famous and beloved far beyond his native Russia. His death came as a shock. He was only 53. And the suspicious circumstances surrounding his fatal illness, coupled with the tragic tone of his last symphony, curiously titled Patatique, produced a mystique about the composer's last days that still persists today. In 1979, the Russian émigré musicologist Alexandra Orlova published a now infamous article proposing that Tchaikovsky had, in fact, committed suicide by poison on the orders of his fellow alumni of the School of Jurisprudence to cover up his alleged affair with the nephew of Duke Stenbock Turmor. For a time, in the 1980s, suicide and homosexuality replaced the quaint old tale of cholera and drinking water, and as Tchaikovsky's obituary was rewritten, the Patatik Symphony became the chief musical victim in this tabloid tale. Even Tchaikovsky's biographer, David Brown, writing in the Sacrosanct Grove, accepted Orlova's theory. But in recent years, scholars have wisely backed off Evidence is almost totally undocumented, and a number of musicologists, including the biographer Alexander Poznansky, have refuted Orlova convincingly. The circumstances surrounding the composition of the Patatique Symphony are dramatic and mysterious, if less lurid than pulp fiction. In December 1892, Tchaikovsky abruptly decided to abandon work on a programmatic symphony in E-flat major on which he had been struggling for some time. An irreversible decision, he wrote, and it is wonderful that I made it. He eventually turned portions of the abandoned symphony into his third piano concerto, which the Chicago Symphony played for the first time in December. But the failure of the new symphony left Tchaikovsky despondent and directionless, and he began to fear that he was played out, dried up, 
as he put it. I think and I think and I know not what to do, he wrote to his nephew Bob Davidoff, whose friendship and encouragement would help him see through this crisis. Although he felt he should give up writing pure music, that is, symphonic or chamber music, within two months he had begun the symphony that would prove to be his greatest and his last. Renewed and relieved by the old familiar joy of composing, Tchaikovsky wrote frantically. Within four days, the first part of the symphony was complete and the remainder precisely outlined in his head. You cannot imagine what bliss I feel, he wrote to Bob on February 11, 1893, assured that my time has not yet passed and that I can still work. The rest went smoothly and the symphony was completed without setbacks by the end of August. Tchaikovsky conducted the premiere of his new symphony on October 16th in St. Petersburg. The audience, all St. Petersburg, rose and cheered when the composer appeared on stage. But after the symphony, the applause was half-hearted. The crowd didn't know what to make of this somber, gloomy music. Leaving the concert hall, Tchaikovsky complained that neither the audience nor the orchestra seemed to like the piece. Although, two days later, he decided that it is not that it wasn't liked, but it has caused some bewilderment. The morning after the premiere, the composer told his brother Modeste that the symphony needed a title. Tchaikovsky had originally thought of calling it the Program Symphony. Modeste first suggested tragic and then patatique, which in Russian carries a meaning closer to passionate, full of emotion and suffering. Tchaikovsky agreed at once and in his brother's presence wrote on the first page the title that remained forever, as Modeste later recalled, although the composer himself soon had second thoughts. Tchaikovsky's publisher, who knew the marketing value of a good title, ignored the composer's urgent request that it simply be printed as Symphony No. 6. Like the abandoned E-flat major symphony, the new B minor score was programmatic, but as he wrote to Bob, with such a program that will remain a mystery to everyone, let them guess. Bob was only the first to ponder in vain the meaning of this deeply personal work, and even he, to whom Tchaikovsky would ultimately dedicate the score, couldn't draw a satisfactory answer from the composer except that it was imbued with subjectivity. Tchaikovsky carried his program with him to the grave. Cryptic notes scribbled among his sketches at the time refer to a symphony about life's aspirations and disappointments, yet another manifestation of the central theme of both Swan Lake and Eugene Onegin, and in fact, the great theme of the composer's life, the painful search for an ideal that is never satisfied. As scholars have learned more about Tchaikovsky's unfulfilled homoerotic passion for his nephew Bob, a mismatch of youth and middle age, and a tangle of sexual persuasions in a society fiercely intolerant of homosexuality, the temptation to read this symphony as the composer's heartbreaking confession of a painful, repressed life has inevitably proved irresistible. In the inexhaustibly expressive but sufficiently ambiguous language of music, Tchaikovsky could tell the story of his life honestly and unsparingly without ever giving up its secrets. The abstract nature of music has arguably never been so fearlessly tested.
The temptation to read something tragic into this score is as old as the music itself. Even the composer, who didn't want to divulge his meaning, admitted before the premiere that it had something of the character of a requiem. The trombone incantations in the first movement actually quote a Russian Orthodox chant for the dead. And surely the first audience was stunned or bewildered, as Tchaikovsky noted, by the unconventionally slow and mournful finale, trailing off into silence at the end, with just cellos and basses playing quadruple P. When Tchaikovsky died so suddenly and violently on the heels of the premiere, the symphony became identified at once, perhaps inextricably, with its composer's death. By the memorial performance on November 6th, the Russian musical Gazette had already determined that the symphony was indeed a sort of swan song, a presentiment of imminent death. More than a century later, Orlova's devotees were to make much of the slowly fading final passages as a depiction of suicide. The score itself, though perhaps dulled by familiarity, is one of Tchaikovsky's most inspired creations. All of its true master strokes are purely musical, not programmatic. It begins uniquely with the sound of a very low bassoon solo over murky strings. This slow introduction is in the wrong key, but eventually works its way into B minor. The entire first movement sustains the tone, although not the tempo, of the somber opening. The soaring principal theme to be played tenderly, very songfully, and elastically is one of Tchaikovsky's greatest melodies. Tchaikovsky carefully directs the emotional development of this rich and expansive tune all the way down to a virtually unprecedented thread of sound marked with six Ps. The recapitulation reorders and telescopes events so that the grand and expressive melody now magically re-scored steals in suddenly and unexpectedly to great effect. The central movements are, by necessity, more relaxed. The first is a wonderful singing, undanceable waltz, famously set in 5-4. There's a real waltz in 3-4 in Tchaikovsky's Fifth Symphony. The second is a brilliant, dazzlingly scored march, undercut throughout by a streak of melancholy. The finale begins with a cry of despair, and although it eventually unveils a warm and consoling theme begun by the violins against the heartbeat of a horn ostinato, the mood only continues to darken, ultimately becoming threatening in its intensity. In a symphony marked by telling uncommonly quiet gestures, and this from a composer famous for bombast, a single soft stroke of the tam-tam marks the point of no return. From there, it is all defeat and disintegration over a fading, ultimately faltering pulse. Program notes by Philip Husher on Tchaikovsky's Patatique, the Symphony No. 6. My name is Rich Caparella. Thanks for listening.